Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, glad to be with you guys this morning. My name is Ben Coppage. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, uh, most of you, thankfully, over the years I've gotten to meet and know, but if I haven't gotten the chance to know you yet, um, I am the campus pastor with Reform University Fellowship, the campus ministry of uh, this denomination up in Cruces, so uh, a short drive down this morning. Um, I'm excited for the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. It's in Ezekiel, and uh, without giving you kind of a broad uh, update or introduction to this, I just want to give you maybe two sentences of context that will prepare us to hear this text. I'll read half of it now and the other half in a little bit when it makes more sense. Uh, but it's in Ezekiel 36, it's printed in your bulletin, and here's the, here's the basic context that this chunk that we're going to look at happens in the midst of. Ezekiel is a prophet. He's kind of a prophet priest. He lives in both worlds. He wears those two hats. And he has uh, been commissioned and called by God to prophesy uh, to the Israelites who are already in exile. And they're in exile because they've been evicted out of the promised land for breach of contract. And so uh, just like any place you live, there's a contract that comes with it. There's a covenant that came with the promised land, and God said, this land will vomit you out of it if you break this covenant. And the Israelites had done that repeatedly, decade after decade after decade, and so God eventually, uh, through the Babylonians, uh, evicted his people from the promised land. They were in exile, which is a big dilemma for the people of God if you're not in his land. And so he sent his prophet Ezekiel to, to preach to his people to encourage them, but also to clarify what's going on and why they're there. And so uh, that's what's happening in the midst of this. These people's hearts are as hard and cold as this tile, which shapes how they need to hear this message. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, the first chunk of this passage, starting in verse 16. We'll read up to about verse 24. Uh, right now. Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, the promised land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. And so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name there too. So they profaned and defiled my name in the land, and they profaned and defiled my name outside of the land, so that when they were in Babylon, the Babylonians looked at God's people and said, These are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to leave the land? In other words, how, how big of a God is Yahweh if he can't even protect his people and keep them in his land? But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned or unholied among the nations to which they came. Therefore, Ezekiel, this is what I want you to say to my people. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but it is for the sake of my holy name which you have unholied among the nations to which you came. 
I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been unholied among the nations, and which you have unholied among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. We'll pick up the rest of that passage in a few minutes. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning needing to hear from you, our God, and needing you to vindicate your name by sanctifying us. Lord, I, this quote in the beginning of the bulletin is convicting for us to read. We are, we are mirrors that should reflect the perfection of you. And if the mirror claims to be Christ's and reflects tendencies of hell, then we use the name of Christ in vain and people see that. Father, we're not just hearing about Israel unholying your name in the nations. We unholy your name with our words and with our lives. Father, we pray this morning you will hallow your name. Again, not just through words, but through changed lives. That is our prayer to you. And Father, we're also mindful of our brothers and sisters who are not in church this morning in Houston and Corpus Christi in Texas where floodwaters are just beginning and will only rise. We pray that you would spare lives and have mercy. Pray that you would send winds to send that storm back to the sea. We ask this in your name. Amen. A name carries very precious cargo because a name is who you are. When you hear a name, when you hear a name like Chuck or you hear a name like David or Elizabeth or the name of your spouse or your kids or your mom or your dad, what immediately comes to your mind isn't just the word. It's a whole constellation of memories and ideas and thoughts, their character, their personality. All of that just drops out of the sky as soon as you hear their name. The mere mention of a name, Trump, Bernie, Hillary, And you immediately have all of these thoughts, a full mind of everything that that person embodies, who they are, what they are, what they do, what you think about them, just by one word. That's how powerful a name is. And in this way, a name is like a Trojan horse, because a name, your name, carries inside of it, it encapsulates everything about you that makes you you. So you and I are inextricably tied to our names. In a lot of ways, you are your name. You are your name. Ellen Montgomery uh, wrote, Anne of Green Gables, she wrote this. She said, I read in a book once that a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, but I've never been able to believe that. I don't believe a rose would smell as sweet if it was called a thistle or a skunk cabbage. A rose wouldn't be a rose if it wasn't called a rose. And you wouldn't be you without your name. This is why, uh, ladies, it can be in a mini-identity crisis when you get married if you take your husband's last name, right? Because for two decades or more, you've lived with, you've been so-and-so, first name, last name, and all of a sudden, with the stroke of a pen, you have a whole new name. And it's not just getting used to writing it in cursive but you feel like you have changed. Uh, This is why it's so disturbing and just disorienting if you have a friend or a kid or someone who changes their name in adolescence or later on in life, right? 
It's like they've always been known as Elizabeth and they shorten it to Beth officially or, or they just change their name completely. I had a friend from seminary who because of um, just a very difficult upbringing changed his last name uh, to his adoptive father's last name, but he was 25 when he did it. And so we see his name on Facebook and I was like, who is Chase Stevenson? I've never heard that guy. Why is he friend requesting me? Oh, that's, that's Chase Dawes. Oh, okay. It's disorienting when someone changes their name because you're like, you're not, you're not Stevenson, you're Dawes. You're not Elizabeth, you're Beth. I've always known you as that. I can't wrap my head around this new name. You wouldn't be you without your name. So people are tied very closely to our names, which means this. When you share your name with another person, you tell them your name. Hi, I'm Ben. It's a very, very significant moment. Because now you have a, a bit of control over me. Uh, Frederick Beekner says, when I tell you my name, I have given you... Um, says, I've given you control, a hold over me that you didn't have before. You call out my name, Ben, and I'm walking. I stop, I turn, I look, I listen whether I want to or not. Beekner says, in Exodus, God tells Moses that his name is Yahweh, and God hasn't had a peaceful moment since. <laughs> it's not just that we have names and we are encapsulated by our names and that when you hear my name, you think of all of who I am for better, for worse, it's that God has a name too. And all of these things we've said about names, the Trojan horse effect, how it encapsulates all of who you are, how names are sticky. If you're later on in your life, you have a lot of years of memories and experiences and your actions that people tie to your name now. Names are sticky. Well, they're also st- it's also sticky for God. And when he tells his people his name, And he puts his name on his people. The weight of the world is on their shoulders now. And in a sense, in a sense, God sets up a dilemma for himself. Right? Because now his name is associated with us. Because we bear his name. Now think for a minute about how much work you put into defending your name and your reputation. In our culture, this is amazing. When you think about where our culture is, our culture, it is a crime to speak ill of a person's name. You can be sued and lose all of your money if you slander a person's name. All you got to do is slander a person's name and it's a crime. You'll be in the court system getting it litigated. That's how important this stuff is even in our culture. If you have a business and your last name is on the sign, what links would you go to to rectify problems or bad experiences associated with that name? The Rawson family in Las Cruces, Rawson Building Supply. What links would they go to to protect that name? Their name is their business. You lose that name, you lose your business. A friend of mine is a lawyer, Holt Minot Martinez Law Firm. How much does he fight for that name? In the regard that judges hold it in. How much does God fight for his name? Especially when his name is on this land, on these people, on this covenant. If you and I naturally and for good reasons fight for our name and our reputation because our name is us and you only get one. And when you destroy a name, you destroy the person. 
how much more will God be concerned for his holy name? So again, this kind of creates a little bit of a dilemma for God because, again, his name is everywhere. He has told the nation, it's no secret, this, this land is Yahweh's land, and I've brought my people, the Lord's people, Yahweh's people, and I've put them in my land, and this is my covenant to my people. And all the other nations knew it. Like the Babylonians had Marduk, the Egyptians had their pharaohs and their gods, the Israelites had Yahweh, and everyone knew it. So whatever happens to Israel is associated direct. You just follow the chain up to Israel's God. Whatever people see on the ground is what they assume of the Lord as well. And so if Israel gets conquered by another nation and another nation's gods, guess what people assume about Yahweh? Right? Ah, Marduk is the true and living God. Babylon forever. This little fabrication of a God over there in Israel. How, how cute these people have made up a little God for themselves. Where was he when we were conquering their people and taking them into slavery? That's what everybody in the ancient world would have thought of when this was going on. And God knew it. Uh, Ezekiel is a book where uh, 60 times in this book, Ezekiel will bring up, or God through this prophet will bring up his concern for his holy name. 60 times different times in this prophetic letter. God will mention that he's doing what he's doing with his people out of concern for his holy name. It's one of the enduring questions in this book. What will God do about his reputation as his people drag it through the Babylonian gutters every day? What will he do? Will he do kind of a repeat of the flood? Well, he promised he wouldn't destroy the whole earth again with the flood, but maybe one step beneath that. What if it's like almost to that level, but not there yet? Is he going to start over? Is he going to wipe the slate clean and prove to the nations, oh, you better believe I'm the true and living God. Watch this. All the pieces go off the chessboard and he starts over again. Would he abandon his people like corporate sponsors abandon their spokespeople these days when they say anything wrong or do something bad. They're immediately out the door and they repudiate them and act like these are the most wicked people in the world. We had nothing to do with them even though we've been paying them for 20 years. Will God abandon them like that? The absolutely remarkable thing is that he doesn't abandon his people the way corporations abandon their people. And he doesn't wipe the slate clean so that he can walk away with a clean name. He doubles down. He pulls his people even closer. He pulls the object of his ridicule even closer. But it's in a little bit of an unexpected way. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the degree of damage, though, so you can appreciate how how surprising and astonishing what I just said is. Do you remember why Israel was saved. And when I say Israel, you can think church. We're the true fulfillment of Israel, right? We're the true Israel. Why does God save his people? There's a lot of reasons, but one of the key reasons he kept coming back and reminding Israel is, is I saved you to be a light to the nations. You have been rescued to participate in my rescue of the whole world, right? So, I don't know if you live in a new neighborhood or if you live near a new neighborhood. There's tons of them all around here or new condos. 
You know they always have the model home in the new subdivisions or the condos? Why do they have a model home? Why does the builder give up one of the houses out of the whole subdivision, doesn't make any money on it, and he puts all of his money in, it's, it's the best house in the neighborhood, right? It's top quality materials, they didn't cut any corners, superior craftsmanship, perfectly landscaped, and a little sign right out front, right as you drive into the neighborhood that says, model home, open for viewing. Why is that home there? It's so that potential home buyers can come into that house, they can touch it, they can feel it, they can look at it, they can walk around in it, they can smell it, they can look at the baseboards, they can turn on the sink and see if it's a cheap faucet or not. And they can come to the conclusion, this house is amazing. I want this builder to build my house too. I want to live in a house that he built. That's why model homes are there. Israel was saved to be the model home in the world. The church has been called out from the world to be the model home for the nations. Come in here, walk around, touch it, feel it, smell it, taste it. So that you will leave and say, with a mouth just salivating, I want that God. Look what he did for his people. Look how good he is. Look how brilliant he is. Look how careful he is. Look how faithful he is. We want to live here. That's what Israel was called to be. Here's what Israel became. I don't know if you've seen the movie Animal House. But that's what Israel turned the model home into. I lived in a fraternity house in college, and on Sunday mornings, the night after the party, those houses smell awful. And they're repugnant, unless you're caught up in that culture and don't care. They're repugnant. There's stains everywhere. There's puddles of stuff everywhere. There's beer cans everywhere. There's trash everywhere. It stinks. Or take this metaphor. Sorry, ladies, for some reason, y'all are always the ones associated with the cat lady phenomenon with like 30 cats living in your house or 100. But think about the cat lady's house where for some reason animal control or ASPCA finds this just disgusting situation with hundreds of animals living in a house that have destroyed it, that have left piles of their mess everywhere, that have urinated everywhere. People have to have aspirators and Tyvek suits to go inside. If, you're, if you have that image in your head, you have a very good image of what Israel was. It smelled. It stank. Even the pagan nations pinched their nose when they saw Israel. Uh, Ezekiel is pulling no punches here. You might have thought, wow, that metaphor about, or, or God actually is pulling no punches. That metaphor of uh, Israel had become defiled like he says in, uh, in verse 17 that the uncleanness of a woman and her menstrual impurity. That's not a medical category for the ancient Israelites. That's a purity category of how close you can be to God. But he doubles down. He does it throughout his prophecy. And it's a double entendre. It's wordplay. This, this term he uses for idols is literally in Hebrew, pile of stones. And pile of stones is almost indistinguishable phonetically from piles of poop. And Ezekiel, God through his prophet is reminding his people what he thinks of our idols. 
how silly our bowed down adoration of our idolatry is. Look at what you're worshiping. Look at what you've given your life to. You are worshiping excrement. And it has filled my land. And so you're out of here. He always promised to do that. Break this covenant. And I, because I care about my land too, not just my people, not just my name, I care about my land because it's the model home. You're out of here, Israel. It's utterly repugnant to God. The dilemma for God gets even worse though because God's name is all over the land, all over the people. And so when the people come to Babylon, they still stink, their land still stinks. Did you catch what the nations said, who they blamed? They didn't say, look at these weak little people. Where did their mind go immediately? These are Yahweh's people. I thought I recognized y'all. You're Yahweh's people. He couldn't help you out, could he? Sorry. Here's Marduk. Here's a temple. You should come worship him because he actually provides for his people. That's what the nations thought when Israel was sent out of the land. So God is very concerned. He said, in my land, you unholied my holy name, and outside of my land, you unholied my holy name by his people. So his people's actions and reputation has now stuck to God's name and actions and reputations, and people have confused the two. So again, the question becomes central. What will God do to vindicate his holy name? He moves closer to the stink. He doesn't disown his people. He owns this people publicly to himself. And that is astonishing when you hear what we just talked about, the model home, animal house, the cat lady, the metaphors that the prophet is using to describe his people. In, verse, in chapter 37, very next chapter after this, if you think these people are soft-hearted and repentant, not so much. Ezekiel describes them as dead bones, a valley of dead bones that the spirit will be breathed over and brought back to life. These people have no hope apart from God moving towards them. Their ability to understand their situation and how they got into their situation is nil, zero, hopeless. They think the reason that they got conquered by the Babylonians is God is unfaithful. And if, when anything good happens to them, when and if they're restored in their minds, if we're restored, if we go back to Israel, they will take credit for it. So they give God the, the, the credit for getting evicted, and they take credit for being the reason they're brought back. And God is setting the record straight through his prophet. No, 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 no. It's just the reverse of that. The way he does this is he unbalances the truth. And he, he says some, some things to his people in a way that catches them off balance or knocks them off balance so that they can hear it. They are so hard, so cold, so unfeeling, so blind, that God comes to them and he says, instead of the whole truth, he takes a sliver of the truth to knock them off balance so that they can hear, so that they can get it. And these are the two things that he says. The first thing is, I will sanctify or clean my holy name by cleaning the people who bear my name. 
the way I will vindicate my reputation is vindicating the people who bear my reputation. The way I will clean my name is by cleaning the people who bear my name. The way I will repair the damage is by repairing the cause of the damage, which are my people and their hearts. That's how God will get his good name back. The second thing is this. He doesn't just clarify that that's how he's going to redeem his reputation by redeeming his people. But he clarifies why he's doing this. And it's not by accident because he bookends this whole prophecy with boom, da 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 da, boom. Don't think, Israel, that I'm doing this for your sake. I am doing it out of concern for my holy name. And this is where God unbalances the truth because some of what he says in this passage and what we'll read in just a second, some of this sounds familiar to us. It sounds like gospel. Like when he talks about this, if you've glanced down to the second part, it's encouraging. It talks about a new heart, the spirit being poured out. Some of this doesn't sound like gospel though. You said, wait a second. You're saying the motivation of the gospel isn't me. It isn't God's people. It's God's concern for his name. Saying, yes, there's more to the story than that, but God is unbalancing the truth because his people needed to hear a sliver of the truth, not all of it. Like my three-year-old Eli needs to hear a sliver of the truth, not all of it, when for the 10th time he comes out of his room after we've put him to bed and says, I'm scared. The previous nine times, Eli got all of the truth. Eli, mommy and daddy are right here. Let's search under your bed, put you back in, I'll tuck you in. We'll pray together, we'll sing, whatever. On the 10th time when Eli comes out of that room, Eli needs a sliver of the truth. I am your father, you're my son, obey, go to bed. For the 10th time, he doesn't need the whole truth because it's not helpful to him. He needs a sliver of the truth. He needs his father to unbalance the truth and bring him, confront him with a piece of it because that's the piece he needed. Because I wasn't born yesterday unlike him. And I know he's manipulating me. (laughs) So God is unbalancing the truth for his people. Did Jesus come because God loved the world? Yes, you bet your life he did. Did God send his son because he's faithful to his promises? You better believe he is. Did God come because you were stuck and had no hope? of being reconciled to him. You better believe it. Did God come, not for our sake, but for the sake of vindicating his reputation? You better believe he did. These are stacked motivations, and at different times in our lives, we need to hear one or the other, or all, or one. And that's what he's doing here. Let's read the second part of the passage. Listen for the unbalanced truth. We've heard the the hard part up front. Here's the other part of what he says. This is picking up where I left off in verse 24. God says, I will take you, Israel, from the nations that I sent you to, and I will gather you from all the countries, and I'll bring you back into your own land. It's an interesting metaphor, or interesting pronoun, your land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Imagine a father with a little baby who's had a blowout. I will cleanse you. Because remember Ezekiel's metaphor. That's what idolatry is. From all your uncleanness, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. 
And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I'm going to put in you. And I will take out this marble heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Look how he restores the land too. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. He's rebuilding the model home that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Couple of things going on here. God is saying, You won't even be able to feel bad about what you've done until I restore your heart and pour my spirit out on you. You won't be capable of being ashamed of your ways or loathing yourself or having contrite, repentant heart until I've already worked in you. He's also saying this, and this is big news. This is breaking news. The gospel isn't just good news for God's people, the gospel is good news for God. Because it's through the gospel that he gets his name back. It's through the gospel of grace that he gets his reputation back. It's through the gospel of grace, the redemption of his people, your rescue, that his reputation is rescued. The gospel is good news for God too. And if he's going to get his name back, he's got to change our hearts. So let's finish by just dwelling on this gospel of grace and how it's articulated in Ezekiel and how it resolves in Jesus. God didn't just send Jesus into the world to save us from our sins. He didn't just send Jesus into the world to gather the nations. He sent Jesus into the world to hallow his name. Jesus is the true Israelite. He's the one man remnant. He's the only one who ever obeyed. He's the only one, in a sense, uh, who made God proud in how he lived. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He came to hallow the Lord's name to redeem his reputation once for all. And it's only through Jesus that God's name is redeemed. There's an interesting thing. Someone pointed this out to me recently. Do you know when Jesus is introduced to the world, the angel commands Jesus' father what to name him? This isn't left to like an argument in the maternity ward. What should we name our kid? Birth certificate's coming. We've got to put a name down. There's no decision here. This is not democracy. The angel says, you will name your son this. Do you remember his name? Yeshua. Joshua. Jesus. Yahweh saves is what that verb means. Yahweh saves. When God takes on flesh through the Son and and comes to save his people, there's a name change. I will save my people from their sins. And that name, Yeshua, Joshua, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, encapsulates all of who this God is. You hear that one word and you get all of his reputation, all of his character, all of his personality, what's most deeply embedded in him. 
is shown forth in that name. Jesus never forgot that he came to vindicate his father's name. When someone is dying, you would imagine their very last words are some of their most strategic, thought-out words coming from the very core and essence of who they are. There's no time for PR or twisting or spinning or fabrication when you're in your last breaths. Here's some of Jesus' last words in the garden, wrestling with his father. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. As if there's a voice from heaven that comes immediately after that. Oh, my beloved Jesus, just wait and see. I will glorify my name. And I will not let this cup pass from you. This amazing thing happens on the cross. Jesus clothes himself, bathes himself in the stink, in the repugnant stink of Israel's idolatry, of our idolatry. He cloaks himself in this pitiful, laughable reputation that we have accrued for him. It is appropriate that people laughed at him and spat on him and pointed at him because he fully stepped into our reputation and our sullied name. And we walked to the cross with the mud of the gutter on him, with the excrement on him. That's why the people laughed at him. That's why the people mocked him. That's why even Peter was so appalled by his reputation that he said, I don't know this man. I've not heard the name Jesus. It's why the name Barabbas sounded more attractive to all the people than the name of Jesus. He was a pitiful man with a horrible reputation. Release the murderer and kill this man. He's that bad. He's that disgusting. That's God on the cross on your behalf. Entering into your shame. Entering into all that you and I have done to make him worthy of laughter and worthy of scorn. (laughs) That's the gospel. How does God vindicate his name by vindicating you how does he take away (laughs) your awful reputation because he takes it and all the stuff we're afraid people are going to do to us if they really knew us they did to him because they really knew him they saw how ugly that looked such is the love of God for his people that he will willingly walk that road for his people's behalf And he will take all of that. The irony just jumps off the page. It's unbelievable. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And there's a naked, heaving, wheezing corpse beneath it. (laughs) What a paradox. This is the true and living God. This is Yeshua. Come for his people. And look at him. This is the paradox of the gospel, Philippians 2. Paul loves this stuff. Paul gets it. 
Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. This is after he said Jesus takes on the form of a servant. He doesn't count equality with God something to cling on to. But he made himself nothing. He takes on the form of a servant even to the point of death, even to the point, Paul says, of death on a cross. Therefore, is the word he says next. Therefore, because of that, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See all the dots coming together? That's how God redeems his name is through Jesus and his work for you. Your transformed life leads to God's transformed reputation in the eyes of the world. Friends, this is the beautiful stuff. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit is where this is accomplished in fullness. You have the Spirit of Christ living in you and he is, been, he is sanctifying you. He is cleansing you every day, moment by moment. So think of your battle with sin or that besieging temptation that you deal with when you were 15 and now you're 55 and you still deal with it. See, every little baby step forward as the Spirit of Jesus enables you and applies his resurrection power to free you. Don't just see that as you battling the bad habit or you battling the thing, the monkey that won't get off your back. See it as you fighting for your father's glory because you bear his name and you have his spirit. The proof that you will win that struggle is that God would never allow his reputation to be sullied by an unsanctified saint. His name is on the line. His name is on you. He will finish what he's begun in you. He will. He will not risk his reputation. And he will not abandon his people. So see every little fight, every little saying no to the flesh, every saying yes to the spirit, every decision to walk across the room and meet a person you don't know, you see that and you think of that as hallowing your father's name, as participating in the spirit's sanctification of God's reputation through you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the linchpin of all of this because apart from you, we would bear the shame. Apart from you, we would be abandoned and left to our own stench, our own alienation from you. We are amazed when we think that you willingly cloaked yourselves, yourself in our shame, in our guilt. And you cloaked us in your glory and in your innocence so that now when the father says this is my son my beloved in whom I'm well pleased he is not just speaking of you but he's speaking of all of us united to you we are grateful to have you as our father Lord Jesus to have you as our redeemer and Holy Spirit to have you as our comforter and empowerer we ask it in Christ's name amen